Well, I'd invite you to turn in a Bible, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 1, and uh, whether that's physical or digital, I know in both these rooms you also have some Bibles you can use to follow along, and uh, hint, there'll be a you know, cheat sheet here, I'm sure, on the screen for a lot of what we're going to look at. And uh, just let me say, if you are new with us, you are in good company. My name is Brian, it's actually my first weekend here uh, as uh, a specific role, I guess, in the role of lead pastor. I've actually been here, in fairness, for the last 18 years. Uh, came to faith, not growing up to church uh, as a high school kid, went to school to go into ministry, and then right out of college, uh, was hired to be this church's youth pastor, then they made me the family ministries pastor, then they called me the discipleship pastor, and they gave me a super specific term, associate pastor. Uh, and then after 18 years, I'm still not sure they know what to do with me, so. We're going to give this a gig a whirl here and uh, see how that treats us in the days ahead. Uh, but in light of this planned transition for uh, around two years now, uh, two years ago, the elders and Pastor Wayne, uh, we gathered around this idea of, okay, where are we headed as a church in the next uh, several years. And so along with the elders and pastors and staff and even hearing in some uh, focus groups and things like that with some of you all, uh, formulated a vision for what the next few years would look like. And that's been boiled down into a fancy little document that um, I look forward to uh, looking at with you all in the days ahead. But interestingly, this particular weekend, there were some things recorded more than a year ago now in this that are very timely and applicable to uh, the week that we find ourselves in here. And so uh, just to share a little bit of what's in this, the uh, first thing I want to share with you is one of our four core values, which is actually a value that has existed for the 189 years that our church has been in existence. We've just codified it uh, as recognizing that we are a church that is biblically direction, or directed. And this is the language we put around that, that scripture, it's our ultimate authority. Uh, whoop, back one. There we go. Uh, scripture is our ultimate foundation and final authority on all things, and thus we lead, we preach, and we teach and program accordingly. And then from there, to give some further commentary of, okay, what does it look like for us to be a church that has an impact on our community, in our world, based on what God's calling by his Holy Spirit, based on the foundation of his scripture? Uh, that we have this vision that we are thankful to be a church that remains conscious of and engaged with what's actually happening in our culture today. As the adage goes, with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, the Holy Spirit establishes our steps. And that rather than bury our head in the sand, we discerningly lead through real issues of racial reconciliation, human sexuality, the right to life, and the like. And so as we step into this weekend, we recognize that over the last several years, these issues of racial reconciliation, human sexuality, the right to life, and the like, they have been, if we're honest, piled on top of us, like to the point where you, you can almost hardly come up from air from one issue before the next one is on top of us. And in the ways in which we understand where God has led us to this weekend to start this series in the book of Nehemiah, I'm not sure we could conclude a better book of the Bible that intersects with where the world is at and where God wants to speak into it specifically. You could say it's a great place for us to have a Bible in one hand and the news, uh, since I'm sure a lot of you aren't probably holding newspapers anymore, uh, the news in the other. 
And so we've actually shifted our plans a little bit. We're still gonna be in Nehemiah, but we won't do the, the deep dive that we typically would in an introduction to a book of understanding all the context that brings us. And we'll get kind of a little bit of a brevity of that, but we'll really dive into more of Nehemiah, I promise, in the weeks ahead. But even with that, even with six weeks in this series of a 13-chapter book of Nehemiah, there's no way we can cover the depths and the fullness of all that uh, is in that book. And so Pastor Adam has put together a great resource going deeper, Nehemiah, that will help, uh, you could say, on your own or in a small group to be able to take that deeper dive into what does Nehemiah have to say for us as followers of Jesus. And so you can grab that online, firstdecator.org, or there's physical printed copies uh, at the Welcome Center in the lobby if you want to pick up one of those. And so the book of Nehemiah, chapter one, verse one, it starts off right out of the gate with Nehemiah uh, as the writer, the author. He's narrating his own experiences. And uh, again, we'll share more about who Nehemiah is in the days ahead, but one of the cool things that I love about Nehemiah is, uh, is just who he is and that he is not one of me. He's not the preacher type. He's not a pastor. He's not a Bible scholar. Uh, he's really just like an everyday guy. He's actually a, a businessman, a business administrator, kind of a project manager, a, a contractor, kind of all those things wrapped in one, if that's something that kind of maybe relates to you. Uh, but again, just an everyday guy who God wants to use to do some pretty incredible things. And so he starts off describing the setting that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead. But starts off this way. Um, Nehemiah chapter one, starting in verse one. It says, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was at the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, but they are in great trouble and disgrace. Things are not good. The wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down. And the gates, they have been burned with fire. Okay, so because it feels like you've been dropped in the middle of a movie, uh, just a little bit of what happened that led us to this point where we're gonna pick up Nehemiah, just kind of the cliff's notes. Uh, you've got the scripture starting off in Genesis, God creates mankind, and then out of that, we have Abraham, 12 chapters later, who God says, hey, I'm gonna bless the entire world through you and your offspring. And so fast forward, they multiply, and the people of Egypt don't like how the Israelites are multiplying, and so they enslave them, and then there's Moses who rises up and God uses him to let my people go and then they lead them out of slavery into the wilderness and then out of the wilderness into the promised land by Joshua uh, and that's where God says, hey, I'm bringing you into some great stuff but don't forget, it was me, God, who brought you there or if you forget me, you reject me, things will not go well and that's where we find ourselves. Things had not gone well because they had rejected God and the people of God uh, in 586 um, BC, they are exiled to Babylon. And so 70 years, they're removed from their home, and then they are, through some allowances, able to go back. But what they find is what has happened in those last 70 years is everything they knew has completely crumbled. That the nation, it's in trouble and disgrace. Uh, Nehemiah said the walls have come down, and in those times, to not have walls around your city, it was like the defining factor as to whether or not your city survives or dies. Uh, and so no walls, they're broken down, the gates, they're burned with fire. And so to this situation, Nehemiah responds, verse four, it says, he says, when I heard these things, he said, I just sat down and wept. 
I wept and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven because his land, his people were in ruins. And as we consider our own land, the brokenness, the unrest, the division, the hatred, uh, and not just in our land, but even within the church. We see great trouble and disgrace. We see a land broken down to some measure. I would suspect every single one of us have at some point just verse four, just sat down, just let it go, just wept, just uh, mourned, and hopefully, hopefully have prayed and fasted along the way. And not like those, like, you know, those cute little bedtime prayers, but like really prayed out and cried out to God that was like almost can't help but like, God, where are you in this kind of prayers? You know, when it comes to some of these issues that we're facing in our land, uh, I was actually contacted by uh, a local newspaper here this past week asking uh, specifically if I would provide a comment on the recent ruling of Roe versus Wade and the subject of abortion. And I gotta be honest, when I thought a comment, like a quote, a soundbite, like just the gravity of realizing the complexities of a, a line, a quote, would not be able to do justice to the full subject of life and abortion, that regardless of a court ruling, it is a subject that was just as applicable three weeks ago before the last couple weeks, applicable a year ago, five years ago, 50 years ago, 5,000 years ago. It is a subject that is just as relevant today as it has always been. But because we find it in the bullseye of our cultural conversation today, we will. As it says in our vision for the days of what our church is to be, we're thankful to be part of a church that will remain conscious of and engage with what's actually happening in our culture. As the adage goes, with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, the Holy Spirit will establish our steps. That even though we have this Nehemiah, we have this, it's all coming together, the Holy Spirit, even though we make our plans, God says, he will establish our steps. And so rather than bury our head in the sand amidst these topics, we will discerningly lead through issues of racial reconciliation, human sexuality, today specifically the right to life, and the like. And so with that, welcome to my first week on the job. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of ground rules for us as we step into this. Uh, number one, this is not a political conversation. Our conversation in this space and place is not a political conversation. Uh, to illustrate this, in the book of Joshua, uh, as we were just referencing, uh, Joshua is the one who God called to lead uh, his people into this promised land. And so the first stop on that journey is uh, the city of Jericho, which God is going to give them. And so going into that battle, uh, jo uh, Joshua, um, Joseph, get my Bible people mixed up. Uh, Joshua, he encounters an angel of the Lord, to which you think, okay, this is good news, this is affirmation, and he asks this interesting question. He says to this angel of the Lord, he says, hey, are you for us or our enemies? Which again, seems really odd to me, because like the first five chapters of the Bible, pretty clear, God is using these people, uh, you know, God is with these people. The first five chapters of Joshua prior to this statement, you know, God is clearly, you know, Joshua is the man that he is going to use to lead his people and onward. So it's like, to me, like, why is he asking this question? 
But what's even more interesting to me is the angel's response to, are you with us or our enemies? To that, the angel replies, neither. Neither, he replied. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So isn't that interesting? That even as Joshua, even as the one who is called to lead God's people, asking what had to feel like a rhetorical question, like, oh, angel of God, you're with me, right? We're going, is it? Nope. Nope, I'm on God's side. Because. Because God's side, God's plans, they are bigger, they are more than any one people group, that the angel of the Lord, he is for God's purposes and his plans, which in the end are to bless all people groups, as he said through Abraham, through, spoiler alert, who would be Jesus to bless all the world, which is why we are here today. And so listen, when it comes to us in real time, when it comes to your particular political party, and you may ask, okay, God, are you for us or are you for our enemies? The Lord says neither, neither. The Lord is the Lord of his plans and his purposes. And so at this, we would do well to take our cues from Joshua, where it says he fell face down. He fell face down to the ground in reverence. And so may we, may we humble ourselves. That when it comes to any issue, humble ourselves face down in reverence to the Lord our God, who, let me remind you, says of himself in Isaiah 55, God reminds us that, hey, my thoughts, he says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so as we take our cues from the angel of the Lord, from Joshua, as he learns from this angel, what side then do we find ourselves on? What side could you say are we supposed to be on when it comes to any political party or any particular thing that we find ourselves in? Ultimately, the answer ultimately is neither. Neither, because our allegiance is to the Lord our God rather than to politics or to anything else, and that we might never confuse the two. It's been said that mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. And so number one, today. This is not a political conversation, but it is, as any subject must be, full of grace and truth. We must take on any difficult topic full of grace and truth. John 1 says that the word, that Jesus, he became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. That we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Amplified Bible goes on to expand grace and truth this way, that he came, Jesus came full of grace, which is the unearned, undeserved favor of God and truth, which is absolutely free of deception. And so here's what this means for us, that before you, it is not lost on me what hangs in the balance of this conversation. 
that on the one hand, we have the truth of God, and on the other hand, we have the grace and the love and the hope that is for everyone in Jesus. And most importantly, that we know that we talk about truth and grace, that these are not exclusive or ever even competing ideas. That grace of God, that it is through truth, you could say, that we receive his grace, that is the truth of God, and it is by his grace that he reveals his truth. That unlike manure and ice cream, grace and truth are a beautiful combination. And so as we delve into grace and truth, I want you to hear me, I want you to um, understand clearly that I, nor this church, has any intention plans or desire to heap shame and guilt on anyone because full of grace and truth, neither does Jesus. Neither does Jesus. We see this demonstrated uh, in powerful ways in John chapter eight um, where it's not just a theological theory but it's actually uh, a, a real person in real life that's encountering the real Jesus. It says it this way, it says that at dawn, Jesus, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, uh, they brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery, which always kinds of bothers me because it's like, uh, doesn't it take two to tango? Like, where's the man in this situation? But nevertheless, um, so they bring this woman, and it's here in this passage, I'm actually going to intentionally take some liberties to, you could say, draw out the point we're trying to make here. And so I'm going to replace the woman caught in adultery with a woman who has just had an abortion. And so we'll read it this way. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman who had had an abortion. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught having an abortion. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? You see, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, he, it says, bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, we don't know what Jesus was writing in the sand. Uh, Bible scholars have uh, speculated as to what uh, could have been taking place. Uh, one thought is that perhaps the first time that Jesus stooped down to write, that he started to write the names of the men who were gathered in that circle. And that the second time that Jesus stooped down to write, that under each of their names started to write individual sins under each of their names that they had committed. Which makes the next verse very interesting, verse nine, because it says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Perhaps knowing the older ones, knowing that their list was much longer, dropped the stone and said, I'm out. Of which, listen, your pastor's list would be pretty long. And if you're honest with yourself, yours would do. 
So at this, those who heard began to go away, and one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And so Jesus, he, he straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now, a few quick observations about this passage. Uh, the first thing that we tend to say that Jesus did is, well, he, he led with grace. That was the very first thing he did. But actually, it's not the very first thing he did. The very first thing Jesus does is he actually, he holds accountable all the people in this passage who are present and locked and loaded, ready to cast the stone of judgment at the dismissal of their own sin and judgment. That's the first thing he does. But then from there, yes, Jesus extends grace the unearned, undeserved favor of God. But then thirdly, he directs this woman forward in truth. And this point is very important, that when we understand the grace of God and the truth of God, that we not mistake the grace of God for passivity on truth. Let me say that again. I probably should have put it on the screen. It's quotable, that we not ever mistake the grace of God for a passivity for or on truth. That just as Jesus comes to connect us to him only by the free gift of his grace, he then gives us a foundation of truth to be able to step on and stand on to be able to move forward in our lives. That as we are experience grace and truth and the fullness of grace and truth. You could say that grace says, come as you are, but the truth says you don't have to stay as you are. Grace says, come and you are, come as you are, but truth says, don't stay as you are. It's 2 Corinthians 5, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The new has come and the old has gone. The new is continuing to come into your life and the old is going away. And so as we take this in, the grace and the truth of Jesus, let me just say, if abortion for you, if it's not just a topic, but it's actually a part of your personal story, I want you to know, I want you to hear from the grace of God that you have not outsinned the cross of Christ. That whatever your sin, whatever you're carrying, that you have never outsinned the cross of Christ. And that with that, know that you are not alone. That you are not alone. That I think about the, even this church, that Jessica and I, we have friends in the life of this church where this isn't just a topic, this is a part of their story. And if I could share with you the depths of redemption, the ways in which God has taken that chapter, turned the page in incredible ways that you could not even imagine. And if I could just be their mouthpiece, just share from their lips what it is that they would want to encourage you, they would tell you, God still loves you, he's always loved you, and that you have not outsinned the cross of Christ, that you are not alone, and that through confession and repentance there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is redemption, there is a new chapter for a fuller story that God wants to write in your life because he is full of grace and truth, and they are a beautiful combination that come together for your future. And so to that end, 
as we embark on not just receiving the grace of God, but stepping forward in the foundation of truth. What is then the truth on this subject of abortion? What is God's truth? And even as we step into that, one of the biggest hurdles we have to recognize that's happening in all of our conversations around this subject is what, um, I appreciate what Carl Truman, theologian Carl Truman, he, he calls it the reality of dueling realities. That when it comes to these conversations, these are bigger than political divisions, they're bigger than moral divisions, uh, that they are actually literally dueling views of what reality actually is. That completely different uh, breakpoints in what is actually real. It's like how you can look at a particular situation and be like, that's insane. And yet someone else can look at the exact same thing and say, that makes perfect sense to me. It's because we're not arguing about opinions and discussion. We are literally operating from different fundamental foundations of what is actually real. Truman uh, the theologian, in uh, a recent article in World Magazine, he, he poses it in a question this way. He says, does the world have meaning? Does the world have meaning that transcends the individual, which we as individuals must discover to know who we are? Or is the world just raw material from which we as individuals create our own meaning? by acts of will and unconstrained choice. When it comes to abortion, the question might be posed like this. Is the baby in the womb a person with meaning and reality? Or is a baby in a womb just stuff? These are not simply political questions. These are questions that go to the heart of what it means to be human. And so as we recognize that, it's, it's no wonder why conversations up here can never seem to find a common ground or the same wavelength because they are literally operating fundamentally completely different views of reality at the fundamental foundational level. Completely different. And so where do we go with that? Well, for us, we don't have to ask where we find our reality. We have the authority of Scripture that biblically directs who we are and where we head, of which is clear. Again, full of grace and truth, we are biblically directed by the unearned, undeserved favor of God, but also in his truth that is absolutely free of deception. And so to that reality on the issues of life as it relates to life in the womb, the authority of God's word for us. Genesis chapter one. Right out of the beginning, the creator God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
And so Genesis chapter one, God's creation of humanity, it is the bedrock theology of what you may have heard the term, uh, the imago Dei. It's a Latin term that literally means the image of God, that we are the image bearers. We are the image bearers of the creator. We are created by God and in the creator's image as his set apart creation in humanity, which clearly is lined out different than every other creature as it says, quote, every other living creature that moves along the ground. Completely different. Now listen, I'm all for creatures. Uh, we actually have three creatures that are in our home, uh, or at least close to our home. We have uh, Peanut the horse, uh, Millie the mini golden doodle dog, that's a tongue twister, and uh, Flash the guinea pig. And uh, honestly, um, when it comes to these three animals, I, I love our dog. Sorry, Cole, if I'm honest, I tolerate the horse. <laughs> Honestly, I believe it's because she at best tolerates me. She, um, she kind of has the personality of a cat, like just kind of does her own thing, not really interested in you, but if you're not careful, we'll like walk on your chest, <laughs> something to be mindful of, and uh, spend a good bit of time making sure that uh, Millie the mini golden doodle doesn't actually eat Flash the guinea pig. It's a real thing in our house, just saying. Um, but would I lay down my life for these three creatures like I would my four children? Not a chance. But if all humans are, are nothing more than an evolved guinea pig, just another creature among creatures, then we see how we are operating out of a completely different baseline of reality. But the word of God, it clarifies that reality in that we are created in the image of God, that we are the imago Dei. And God's word, it goes on to be more specific as to what that looks like in passages like Psalm 139, uh, where the psalmist says, for you, God, created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And so I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. And we say this a lot around here. It's just incredible to watch that as science and the social sciences and psychology and physiology and all these things, that more discoveries are made in what we could call the general truth, the general revelation of God's world, how they line up and match up and reveal the way that God has designed it and set it for thousands of years. And quite specifically to the science of Psalm 139, this idea of being fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in a mother's womb, where arguably the science uh, wouldn't have been understood when Roe versus Wade was initially passed in 1973, that at that time there was no sonogram that allowed us to see our baby smile at us before we were even born, or, or, or that just the reality of what we've discovered that in as early as eight weeks, Babies are sucking their thumbs. They respond to sound. Uh, there's even growing evidence uh, that, that they are dreaming, that babies, they, they recoil at pain because they can feel. We see even at that age, they already have their very own unique fingerprint. Because Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together by God in our mother's womb. Now, even as I share that, I realize this is an unfair conversation. 
Uh, it's really more of a one-way conversation. But if I could step inside of some of your shoes, perhaps, and the, we get a million, we know it, there are a million and ones, what about this is, and what about that's is, real difficult, challenging, and complex social issues, and not just social issues as if they're out there somewhere, but personal, individual challenges and struggles and complexities that are faced. And we have to be careful that if we aren't careful in some of those what about this, what about that, we can slip into what we might call a slippery slope argument that we recognize, yes, there are very real questions. Like if we start making it more difficult for a woman to get an abortion, well then this. Or if this is gonna take place, how are we actually going to support and care for all these babies and the mothers and uh, like the foster care system? Like is that your answer? Like I mean the foster care system, it's overloaded, It's, it's a mess. Agreed, agreed, and they would too. But the word of God, as backed up by science, is truth and reality. Well, then the conclusion, the solution to any host of those questions, personal and social and the like, can never be then to kill babies. And so please hear me. In grace and truth, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like uh, to be pregnant and have no money, no resources, no clue what to do next. I have no idea what it's like uh, to be expecting and know, and know there's gonna be no dad in the picture in these days ahead. I have no concept of what it would mean to be a teenage girl, to have her whole life ahead of her, to find out that the test has come back positive and to be completely scared to death. And if like me, if like me, you have no idea what that's like, then may I remind us all, we would do well to just slow down, to slow down our responses, to drench our hearts and our minds and our words just in the the humility and the grace of Jesus. that the meditations of our heart, Psalm 19 says, that the words of our mouth would in all things be pleasing to God, knowing full well that every single one of us are not without sin and that any stone we may have in our hands needs to be put down. Because we need to remember that the furthering of God's kingdom, the prayer that his will would be done right here on earth just as it is in heaven, to remember where that battle is being fought. Ephesians 6. Our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against politicians. It's not against courtrooms. It's not against one another. That's what the evil one wants, for us to turn on one another. It's not against authorities in this world, but rulers and authorities and powers of the dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And when we understand that reality, the unseen reality that the battle is spiritual, then we have a foundation of truth to move forward in knowing what it is we can even do. And so number one, because the battle is spiritual, we number one, we pray. We pray, wow, that's so big, okay. Get the message across. 
We pray. And, and pray, it's such a throwaway church word, right? Like, okay, what's that? I think some synonyms would be helpful. Uh, another word you could put here is trust. We express our trust when we pray. Uh, we seek. That's what he says, seek God. We, we, we earnestly seek his truth and his grace as revealed by his word. We are looking to be led to be led by the power of his Holy Spirit on the foundation of his word as he calls us to live and to move and to move forward. Uh, I think about an instance uh, as recorded in Mark chapter eight where the disciples, uh, they're in the setting where they, uh, they can't cast out a demon. And they've done it uh, you know, many times before, but for whatever reason they can't do it. And Jesus shows up, he saves the day, takes care of things. But then after math and like the, uh, you know, kind of the, um, the evaluation meeting, if you will, the disciples ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon, this evil? To which Jesus responds. He says, ah, this one, it only comes out with prayer. Some manuscripts say, only comes out with prayer and fasting. And look, I don't know what kind of demonic division has overtaken our land, our churches, over the last several years. And I certainly know that I don't have anywhere close to the answers or the responses that will measure up to anything. But I do know that God is calling us to, rather than our last resort, to make our first response that of trusting him, of actually praying. Back to Nehemiah, interestingly that when he was faced, as we're gonna look at again in the weeks ahead, he was overwhelmed with the realities of his broken down city's walls and the gates burned of Jerusalem. And with, we're gonna find out, he had the overwhelming prospect and task to have to go and rebuild not just the walls of a city, but actually rebuild the people of God. He says, when I heard these things, verse four, chapter one, I sat down and I just wept. But then for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And so what can you do? What can I do? What should we do? What are we commanded to do? We are to pray. We are to trust God. And so I would encourage you, real rubber to road, practical action step for all of us. I would encourage you out of the you know, 21 meals that you might eat in a week over seven days, choose one meal this week to fast, to not eat, and to instead use that time to pray to pray for our land, to pray for our churches, to pray for moms and dads facing unplanned pregnancies and those who are on the other side of difficult situations from abortion and all these things that are in the mix. Pray. And when it comes to fasting, maybe that's a new idea for you outside of like the fitness world. Like I thought you just did that to do something. No, fasting from a spiritual sense, one of the best ways I've heard it described is that we fast from food in order to feast on God. That when you fast and you're skipping that meal your belly's used to having, you feel that little hunger pang, rather than go and grab you know, something to eat, you, um, you use that to instead offer up prayers and trust and leading from God. So fast and pray one meal, and then more and beyond in the days ahead as you feel led. And then from there, as we pray, discover where God is calling you to act to act, to take action, that as God's Holy Spirit leads you, how is he leading you to be part of the answer to those prayers? That's what we're gonna see all throughout Nehemiah. He does some crazy, courageous stuff, Nehemiah does, in order to face all kinds of adversities and hurdles and difficulties and threats on his own life and others to do what God has called him to do. And so where is God calling you to courageously lead out? 
Perhaps God has been weighing on your heart to be one of the families in the life of this church, so proud of the families in our church who have taken on foster care and adoption. In fact, there's a couple in the life of our church who just went through this whole process and saw firsthand just the challenges and the overload that the foster care and adoption systems take on and has this, has this idea of starting a ministry that would specifically move to help uh, the foster care system just with like volunteering in an administrative and filing uh, and paperwork type of things just to you know, help out in that way. And so please pray for that couple as they discern what that might look like. Uh, maybe God is calling you to sponsor children all around the world through great Christian organizations like Compassion International and World Vision. And, and then even that beyond children, I'm, I'm thankful to be part of a church that understands that life uh, goes from, you could say, the womb all the way to the tomb, and that we are a part of important ministries like chaplaincy ministries in our local hospitals and uh, our, our rehab center here in town and our local women's prison. That there are ministries that are the tangible touch of Christ that meet real needs for kids in our community through our Club 305 after school program and our upcoming back to school jumpstart clinic. Uh, I'm proud to be a church that actively supports our New Life Pregnancy Center, both with volunteers and boots on the ground as well as financial resources who, don't misunderstand, it's not just about helping moms and dads navigate plans other than an abortion when it comes to an unplanned pregnancy but they are committed, New Life, to walk alongside moms and dads for years, as long as they need, after the little one arrives, to make sure that they are supported and loved and cared for in all the areas that they need. It's an invitation to actually take action on the song that we put our words to just a little bit ago. We sang, Christ be magnified in me. And so how is Christ calling you to be magnified or for, excuse me, for him to be magnified specifically in your life by taking action. So as you pray and discern that, um, you know, it's one of these sermons where I feel like I need like, you know, at the beginning of a book, they have like the acknowledgements, like two pages of all the people that made this possible. Uh, I tell you, between some pastor friends around the country, our staff here in the church and the elders, um, there's a host of those folks who have helped uh, bring this prayerfully and with the content and everything together. Uh, but one I wanted to share with you actually came in an email from Pastor Wayne as I was just sending him some of the notes and the things that I had written. And um, let's see, I guess I should have had this email pulled up. That'd been helpful. Um, where he responded, and he didn't, I don't think he intended for me to read this out loud, but I'm in charge now, so. <laughs> I should just stick to my notes. Um, but, but he said this, and I, I think he said it so well, and I'm so just gonna read what he said. Uh, when it comes to this, he said, hey, just because some of us appreciate the latest Supreme Court ruling does not mean the tide of caring for children and young parents is complete or even in need of applause. Applause is offensive in the case, or in this case, because of the lives impacted. We cannot gloat until every child is cared for, loved, and protected, not only in the womb, but until the moment of adulthood. And then, and only then, we might be allowed to be glad.